Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Centre for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. During today's episode, we'll provide an overview of fixed income factor investing and some of the historical challenges in traditional fixed income and new trends in terms of investable strategies and allocations. I'm George Blake, a consultant advisor within our North America institutional business, and I'll be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Josh Rogers, a beta strategist, and Eric Eisenberg, a portfolio manager, both of whom sit within our quantitative beta strategies team at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Josh, perhaps a good starting point would be a high-level overview of fixed income investing and some of the challenges we've historically observed. Sure, yeah. I, I think that it's going to be really important to actually start with some of those challenges because it sets the framework for everything that we're seeing today, all the trends that we're seeing today. A couple of things that I think come to mind when I think of the historical challenges that investors have faced in fixed income investing. Number one, it's a fragmented market. Right. When we actually look across the globe today, I think there are some positives. Investors do see a larger and larger base of assets that they are able to invest in. Right. Global fixed income markets, for example, are probably around about $110 trillion in terms of total assets in those securities today. That's pretty substantial growth. Along with that have actually come new structures as well, things like mortgage-backed securities and floating rate bonds and inflation-protected securities. Right, All of that is new within the last, call it, 30 years. But unlike in the equity markets, fixed income markets and fixed income issuers um, actually tend to have more than one issue per corporation, right? For any common stock, I know that one ticker for that one stock. When it comes down to a corporation, they they could have literally dozens, if not maybe even hundreds of individual QCIPs for every bond that they've issued historically. Another interesting tidbit, we actually saw that via trace data, uh, which is just a a way to to track U.S. individual bond transactions that occur on a a day-by-day basis, actually 35,000 individual QCIPs traded in one year alone um, very recently. So, I mean, look, this is a challenge for any investor who's entering this space or who is even remotely familiar with this space, right? Just that number alone, that sheer number alone, I think can be very overwhelming. The second challenge that I think has also played a big role in terms of how investors have allocated here is transparency and a lack of transparency across fixed income markets, right? Historically, all fixed income has generally traded over the counter and generally via a negotiated basis, right? What does that mean? That means that if I wanna buy an individual bond, I have to call up a desk, hope, number one, that maybe they have inventory, and then I have to actually negotiate the price that I'm gonna buy it at, right? That has created its own set of challenges for anyone who's trying to manage portfolios in fixed income, right? They don't even know if they'll be able to access that bond, and if they do, they don't know exactly what price they're gonna get it at unlike in the equity markets where you have that full transparency on a second-by-second basis. So I think that those have been some of the big challenges that investors have faced historically, which, again, I think has led them to two real outcomes. Number one, either they've outsourced their fixed income management, which I think, you know, for many investors, that's the easy way to go. And certainly, um, I think that there are plenty of firms who are able to, uh, you know, to, to have that expertise that are needed or they've actually had to employ dedicated teams internally so that they could actually manage those portfolios themselves. It's a huge amount of resources. 
Great. And given those challenges, what trends have we seen more recently in terms of investable strategies and allocations? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think, you know, over the last, call it uh, 10 to 15 years, and really, I'd probably put most of this post-financial crisis, because that's really where we've seen, I think, a lot of the change take place. A couple things. Number one, we have seen that investor preferences have, have at least somewhat shifted over those 10 years. I think a large part of that shift actually has a lot to do with the overarching difference in terms of credit spreads that we see pre-crisis versus post-crisis. What I mean by that is that if you're seeing your overarching yields that you're getting from an individual corporate bond being compressed pretty substantially, that means that I'm going to then take into account not only the, the cost and the access that I have, but also the liquidity that I need to actually get access to those underlying bonds, right? So what I think has actually evolved are a couple things, right? That access. More investors, a broader set of investors, actually have more access across different aspects of the fixed income markets. Interestingly enough, cash bond issuance is up to record highs, yet we see trading volumes, unfortunately, looking actually lower than they were pre-crisis. But that also then, I think, bodes well for other wrappers and other ways to access uh, fixed income markets that I think have sapped up some of that liquidity. On that point, I think liquidity has also been a really big enhancement that we've seen over the last 10 years and an evolution that we've seen in the overarching industry, right? You know, as much as I think those challenges have persisted in individual cash bond liquidity, some of those uh, things like ETFs or even credit derivatives, I think, have started to actually take on a new role and provide additional layers of liquidity to fixed income investors. And then finally, I think there's this big push towards cost efficiency. I mentioned the the corporate bond spreads have come in pretty dramatically. That means if I'm only getting 3% yield on an individual IG corporate, I need to really be sure that I'm getting the best access, the best price, and paying the least amount possible to then manage that on a go-forward basis. You know, completely agree, Josh. Just to add to that from a portfolio management perspective and what we've seen and how much change we've really seen in the fixed income markets, um, if you went back only 15 years ago and you think about how these funds were managed, basically portfolio managers were picking up the phone. They were calling their their dealers. It was a very high-touch marketplace. There was minimal transparency in terms of what you know other people were executing at. And then, then bonds were being valued in the, in the portfolio at a valuation that may or may not be representative of where you can actually trade. So it was actually, in many ways, hard to measure your risk at the time, hard to measure your performance attribution. Um, and what ended up happening from a portfolio management perspective is that you had over-concentrations. You had unintended risks and under, unintended exposures within your portfolio because you had to buy fewer bonds in larger size because it was operationally challenging to buy a lot of bonds. Now, fast forward that to today, and you know, electronic execution has really taken off, and especially at smaller size. So, you know, portfolio managers who are looking to obtain greater diversification can now trade hundreds of bonds in a single day, and at the same time, they can achieve more targeted risk exposures and allocations. So, with the advent of optimizers, with the advent of risk models, with the advent of you know better attribution tools. What ends up happening in the overall result for clients is we're getting we're seeing better investment outcomes. We're seeing more details in terms of exactly how those allocations are being achieved. And as Josh mentioned earlier, we're seeing better cost efficiency because we're doing this more systematically. This sounds very similar to what we've seen in terms of equity investing. Would that be correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is the logical kind of path and evolution that we've seen across across the board. Right? Fixed income, I would say, historically has almost always been a couple footsteps behind equities. If we think about, you know, some of the different iterations that we've seen in fixed income and how that relates to equities more recently, right? When we think about uh, equity indexes, right? The first big equity indexes, at least in the US, were, you know, incepted back in the 1950s. 20 years later, you saw the first fixed income indexes, right? Same can be said for um, index funds as well, right? And so as we see kind of like these evolutions that have taken place in equities, we generally see this kind of lag behind in terms of fixed income. But I think overall, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, we have seen this access and liquidity and cost efficiency that's been very important for equity investors. And again, I think with those muted return expectations, just like I talked about those credit spreads coming in, those muted return expectations in equities, I think have also been that big driver behind some of the evolution that we've seen. Now, I think that this leads us to factor investing. Right? The way that we see things today is that there's probably, and it's tough to really ballpark, but one and a half to two trillion dollars in systematic factor-based strategies globally. That is tremendous, right? And that allows institutions, you know, factors allow institutions to not only hopefully be able to enhance returns over the long term based on the things that we're talking about today, but also then allow them to really get a, deep, a deeper look into their portfolios and use them from a risk management perspective. That's why we're seeing that evolution in equities and why we have seen it. And that's why we're going to continue to see that poured over into fixed income over the next few years. Great. Now, Josh, many of our listeners will understand factor investing in equities, particularly those who have listened to the previous podcast we did a couple of weeks ago. But I still think it's probably worth us spending a couple of minutes refreshing our minds on what factor investing in equities really is. Sure. Yeah, I, I think to, to give kind of like the, the short version of what we see in terms of factors in equities, you know, look, I, I think a lot of the research that relates to factors in equities dates all the way back to the 1950s and the advent of CAPM, right, capital asset pricing model. That was trying to determine what truly were the drivers of risk and return of any individual security, right? Just trying to dig a little deeper and understand what drives those risk and return attributes of any individual securities. As those ideas have evolved, I think we've seen factor investing take on a new kind of role in many clients' portfolios. One thing that I do, though, think is important to keep in mind in terms of factor investing long term is that there has to be, and it has it has to be based in some form of economic rationale, right? There has to be some reason as to why these types of trends and, and drivers of risk would persist in a portfolio long term. That has resulted in research along the lines of factors like value and quality and momentum, right? These are things that we believe have economic rationales as to not only why they've persisted, but then once we do the research and look historically at what that has actually meant for securities that, that possess those attributes, that they actually do have the ability to enhance returns in an overall portfolio. So, you know, certainly I think today we do see many investors that have, um, especially in the institutional realm, have kind of made that migration from that return enhancement and that risk reduction standpoint. But certainly I think there's more content in the other podcasts to, to go deeper into that. So Eric, why is factor investing in fixed income such an interesting topic for investors today? So as investors have gained comfort with factor investing in equities, their natural next step is to turn their attention to fixed income. And you know, as they gain awareness of fixed income market cap indices and how they are constructed, 
you know, the, the flaws are, are very obvious. The overweighting of the most indebted companies and the most indebted countries is perhaps a good way of getting representation of the overall market, but is not necessarily a good investment strategy. And if you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Global Ag Index, you see that there's huge overconcentrations. In the case of that index, it is 80% rates exposure. If you look at the you know, global treasury indexes, you see that nearly 70% of your exposure is going to be Japan and U.S. treasuries. So the flaws in fixed income are clearly uh, greater than those that you would see in equity market cap weighted indices, where in equities you might be buying the largest company, you might be buying like the Apple. In fixed income, you're going to buy the most indebted company. You might be buying CVS, for example. And that might not be the strategy that investors want to get into. Before we get into more depth on the research that you have done in the quantitative beta strategies team, what research has been published historically? Is there a significant base of research like there is in equities? Yeah, it's, it's a good question and actually I think it's an important one that many clients do ask because I think they are probably very well aware of equity factor research, like I said, that has you know a history dating back almost 70 years and probably have not necessarily seen the same level of research come out on fixed income. The one thing that I would just mention is that for those of us that are factor believers, we do believe that factors are agnostic of asset class, right? That means that an, an, a factor that should theoretically provide excess return or explain performance in one asset class should theoretically also work in another. And so I will, I think that what's important there is that we actually have seen historically some factor research that has actually been across asset classes, right? Not just equities, but that has crossed over into commodities and currency and even fixed income. And so there has been some level of base. I think the challenge though, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about our research, is data. Right, data is much more challenging to come across in terms of fixed income research. And so I think that that has been, especially for academic research, the big challenge because it's expensive to get. Okay, so you just touched on that. So let's dive into that a little bit more detail. What research have you guys been focusing on? Sure. I think just at a high level to start things off, I think it's important to note kind of where we come from as an investment engine from a research perspective, right? We believe that yes, when we can, we should definitely be drawing on academic uh, literature and academic research. I would say that here we focus on academic research that proves out the existence of these factors in all asset classes, right? Value, quality, momentum, right? So that is the baseline for all research that we do as an investment engine. But then we take it a step further further. We make sure that actually we then take an independent approach and, and take another look at that data and make sure that it actually aligns through our lens with what we see in the published data. right? And then even more important than that, once we actually do the research, then we present it to probably the toughest audience that we can ourselves. Right, we actually at every quarter um, present at our uh, research summit to our entire team our findings that relate to, to uh, factor topics along these lines, and we ask the hard questions. Right, not only does the academic research show the same thing that our research shows, but then is it actually implementable in an investable strategy? So you know, every quarter we're we're doing that and figuring out exactly what we believe is actually a true factor and investable. Yeah, I think those are great points, Josh. I mean, just to add to, a little, to that a little bit in terms of what we're doing in terms of translating this 
to fixed income, first of all, as you mentioned, and I think it's, it's an important point, we do believe that factors are asset class agnostic. So, you know, naturally for us, what we've tried to do is take our quality, value, and momentum factors and translate them from fixed in, from equities to fixed income. And what we do see is that A, it does work well, and B, it's a great out of sample test to show that not only do factors work well across regions and across time, but they also work well across asset classes. Now clearly there's some differences in fixed income, and that's where we've been focusing our efforts. So we've been looking at some of the structural differences in the market, challenges around liquidity, around transaction costs, around duration, and how we implement these factors in the most effective way. That sounds like a pretty intensive process. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the challenges that you've faced in the past, and maybe why other asset managers haven't gone down this path previously. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the first thing that really comes to my mind is the data quality and, and the cost of obtaining that data. So, you know, if, if you think about what you need to do this in fixed income, you really need historical pricing, which is not always cheap to obtain. And you need historical analytics. And by analytics, I mean yields, durations, spreads, those sort of things. And importantly, if you're going to be looking at fundamental measures and balance sheets, you need to be able to map the fixed income entity to the equity entity. So to give you an example of what I'm talking about here, take Bear Stearns, for example. Prior to the crisis, a Bear Stearns bond is going to be linked to a Bear Stearns equity entity. Post-crisis, obviously we all know now that's part of J.P. Morgan, that would need to be linked to a J.P. Morgan equity entity. So while there might be one clear equity entity, each of those can have hundreds of fixed income entities that are issuing debt. And getting that mapping right, and getting that mapping right historically with all the corporate actions that have occurred and going back you know, 20 or 25 years to do a proper back test is a big challenge. And if you're really going to do this the right way, you should be doing it across investment grade, across high yield, you should be doing it across currencies and doing it globally to ensure that what works well in one region works well in other regions and you are effectively doing an out of sample test. So thinking about defining factors, do the equity matrices really translate into fixed income? Can you tell us a little bit more about your findings at a high level? Yeah, um, maybe I'll start there, and I because I, I think it is important to talk a little bit about equities first. So you know, when we think about the equity metrics that we use, they're generally very kind of widely available metrics to measure value, quality, and momentum, right? So for value, we might use a price to book or a price to cash flow type of metric. For quality, we look at things like profitability and financial solvency. For momentum, again, very very simple in terms of just utilizing that standard equity equity price momentum, looking at trend, right? So I think that it's, while for equities, it's generally pretty easy to define, I think for fixed income, you do actually have to take a slightly different approach. Yeah, and I mean, just to add to that, and I think that's a great point, we do look at quality, value, and momentum in slightly different angles. So, you know, when we look at quality, for example, we're also going to be looking at profitability and leverage, but we might be looking at something like distance to default, which might be more relevant in fixed income than it is in equity. When we look at value and we're looking at market measures, we're not going to be looking at price movements, we're going to be looking at spread movements. Momentum is generally going to be similar. But from a broad standpoint, you know, what, what do these quality, value, and momentum factors do to your portfolio? We generally view value as a return enhancer. It's basically tilting more towards higher yield. So it's, it's basically increasing your risk. But if you were to implement that from a standalone perspective, it could be challenging because it could have higher turnover. Because again, it's dependent upon spreads. 
and these higher turnover strategies are more difficult to implement within fixed income. When we look at quality, we really think of that more as a volatility dampener. What it's going to do is hopefully over time lower your drawdown and minimize your risk exposure. However, if you were to implement that in a standalone portfolio, what it might look like is something that's very low yielding, and it might not be what most investors are looking for. And similarly, from a momentum perspective, while we do see it translates well from equities to fixed income, implement, implementing that as a standalone factor could be a challenge because of the high turnover that you have there. So there are ways around this to implement them as single factors, but again, you know, we do see those value, quality, and momentum factors naturally at a higher level translating over from equities to fixed income. So this research sounds quite compelling, but when thinking about implementing these insights into an investable strategy, what construction considerations are important? Yeah, so there's certainly many portfolio construction considerations that come into play in fixed income that are perhaps less meaningful in equities. So a big thing that we do look at a bit more is liquidity. Obviously, we're very much mindful of turnover because transaction costs are higher, and that can, that can detract from your strategy. And of course, we still look at capacity. From a single versus multi-factor perspective, we are clearly aware that there's some challenges in implementing these, some of these things from a single factor perspective, just because of the turnover involved and how that may lead to more transaction costs, which detract from the overall risk-adjusted returns you're trying to achieve. But what we've seen with multi-factor strategies is that by combining the factors in an integrated approach, we can mitigate a lot of that turnover and still achieve a lot of the upside without being impacted too much by transaction costs and turnover. And finally, I would also say that the structure of the vehicle is very meaningful to us. So when you think about offering these things in a segregated account or to someone who is more open to holding securities for a longer period of time, we can get a little bit more into less liquid securities. And clearly we've seen those outperform. So smaller size securities, shorter duration securities, they definitely add outperformance over the time, but they may not be the best type of factor to include in a product like an ETF where liquidity is going to be more meaningful. Many institutions out there today may be getting access to factor-in-based strategies by tracking an index. In most instances, an asset manager can just fully replicate something based along those lines. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in actually managing a factor-based fixed income portfolio? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, that's a question we get all the time as portfolio managers. And I think the natural inclination is to look at these strategies and think that they're going to be fully replicated. But in fixed income, the reality is you can have an index that has 10,000 bonds, and you could be managing that with a fund that only has a few hundred bonds. And if you're managing it you know, with an ETF or another type of vehicle that can accept smaller flows, you can get a flow where you can only really buy perhaps a few dozen bonds. So that, that challenge exists in whether you're looking at just tracking a market cap weighted index or you're looking at tracking something that is more factor based. And I think the great thing is that over the last few years, portfolio managers across the industry have built out tools in the forms of optimization platforms and in, terms of in, in the form of risk models that allows them to effectively manage these funds with minimal tracking error. And these tools, the good news is, naturally translate over to factor based strategies as well. So, it is, it is really more of just an incremental step to consider the various factors within your optimization process. And it is not really a revolutionary change in terms of how these portfolios would be managed. 
Josh, what sort of feedback have we received from our clients on the research we've been conducting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think we've we've actually heard a, a number of interesting things. Number one, I think clients are very interested to see more about research along these lines than I think we've we've heard certainly in the last few years. So definitely an uptick in terms of interest. What I would say though is depending upon the different types of institutions that we speak with, I think brings us to how interested they may actually be in a strategy along these lines. So I kind of put institutions in, in two separate camps. Number one are the institutions that have been sizable enough and, and feel comfortable with having their own individual, say, bond traders dedicated within their own firm. Maybe they have a couple of folks who are dedicated to trading high-yield bonds that are more certainly probably fundamentally driven in their investment decisions. I think they may have a little bit more of a, a challenge in terms of due diligence and strategies like these. They may not be as aware of the changes that we've seen happening in equities and how factors are playing a bigger role in portfolios there. And they may just be much more aware of kind of what's going on fundamentally with some of these firms. And so they may not necessarily be the biggest advocates for a factor-based implementation. However, I do think, and we do see many large firms that have cross-assets as a class special. And for those firms and those institutions, I think factor-based fixed income is truly at the top of their list. They want to hear more about it. They want to understand because they've used factors, like I said, for both return enhancement in their equities, but probably also for risk management and viewing their portfolio through that lens. And so I think there are kind of two camps, but at the same time, I think there is um, certainly opportunity for both. Great. And Eric, how do you see clients implementing these types of ideas in their portfolios moving forward? So the more traditional type of client demand that we see is for what I would call tilts and filters. A good example of a tilt, I would say, is take investment grade. You may want to tilt towards higher yield within investment grade. To achieve that, what you would do is basically perhaps buy more value and maybe a little bit less quality and momentum. A good example of a filter, I would say, would be a defensive high yield portfolio. So a defensive high yield portfolio is one where you might look to avoid those defaulted names. One way to do that would be to use your quality factor as a filter and maybe say, I'm going to drop out the lowest quality 5 to 10% of names, depending upon how you choose to, to do it. But we really have a broader view of factors. We view factors as a, a framework for systematic bottoms-up security selection, which makes, which makes them eligible to be used in an enormous amount of investment strategies. So whether you're investing in a buy and hold or buy and maintain type strategy to target maturity, or a broader custom type of market exposure, to us, there are clear advantages to using a factor-based approach to security selection instead of debt issuance weighting, which, as we mentioned in the past, is clearly flawed. And a final thought from you, Eric. What do you think the future holds for factor-based fixed income strategies? So, as Josh mentioned earlier, there's about $1.5 to $2 trillion in factors right now. And the interesting thing is a very, very small percentage of that is in fixed income, despite the fact that fixed income is really a much larger asset class than equities. So we believe that interest over time will eventually be even greater in fixed income than it is in equities due to the flaws we mentioned previously in market cap weighted strategies in fixed income. So we're really excited to be able to say that we've completed all of our credit factor research We've done it across investment grade, we've done it across high yield, and we really do see that other asset managers as well will be bringing these type of strategies 
more and more to the forefront over the next few years. And we're excited for the opportunity to offer these to clients who are interested in a more cost-effective, transparent solution to the management of their portfolios. Thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us today on the JP Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. This episode was the third in a four-part beta strategy series with our final episode focusing on factor investing, crowding, timing, and cycles. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded 16th of July, 2018. The company, stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL, in Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co reg number 197601586K, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co reg number 197601586.
201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.